The thing that bonded our particular group together is that we had really evolved out of goth music and industrial music and punk and hardcore prior to that. So I think what set us aside, and I know in interviews Michael Musto has has mentioned this, that our sort of wave was a little scarier and a little tougher, and a, they weren't. We also weren't so much like ecstasy, yay, play, you know, playful. We were like, let's let's take acid and go to another dimension and time travel. And you know, Desi and I used to talk about having fire starting powers and telekinesis. And again, we were these battered queer kids, so we wanted power. It's like we had been the underdogs, and when we got to New York and saw the club kids. It was like, wait, you know, we can empower ourselves. We're, we're not the victim here. You know, we can take control of this thing. Money, success, fame, glamour. Money, success, fame, glamour. I'm James St. James. This is Night Fever, uh, New York nightlife in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, the co-founders of World of Wonder, Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado. Hello, boys. Hi, hi, hi. Yes, we are celebrating the party monsters, the club kids, the disco dollies, the downtown denizens, the superstars of the night, the, the, the architects of the New York club scene. And today we have with us an icon of the era, a, a legendary legend. He is an artist. He is a designer, a jewelry designer. He is a club kid icon. He is a musician with the band Boob, one of my favorite bands of all time. He's the author of New York Club Kids, Walk Paper, an exhaustive study of the New York nightlife scene in the 80s and 90s. Give it a, give us, have a big hand for Walt Paper, a.k.a. Walt Cassidy. Thanks, James. Can I just say, James, I know you've got a whole slew of questions, but that book is amazing. I did not read it from cover to cover last night, unlike James, but I did dip into it and was reading it. I have now reached such an age where the print is too small for me. I had to put, have a magnifying glass with my glasses. It is so, I need to have one of those big readers where the font is that big for it, because it is, it's very small for it. But you had to get it all in there. You had, you only had so many pages to tell the story. And it is. It's such a beautiful book and it is an amazing, it is the sort of piece of artwork or the way to remember the club kids that, that you always wanted to have. And it's amazing that no one had done it until you did it. And it's so great that you did it because I can think of no better person who would have done it or done such a great job because it's, it's a real tribute and testament and, and it's a work of art in itself. Plus, having lots of pictures of you, of course, and, and James. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I mean, it, it, it was challenging because originally it was about a 500-page book. But, James, as you know, you know, you have your I, – I had to fight page. For, I was like, can I get another two pages? Can I get another – you know? But it was huge. I had originally intended to kind of cover all through the 90s. You know, in my mind, the 90s really start – in begin to start in 88 and end with 9-11 that's sort of how in my mind i i frame that decade we know decades don't always start and start start and stop where they're supposed to so but i you know i had to cut it off in 96 you know essentially i didn't get to go too much further because you know we were trying to appeal to a certain demographic and and you know young kids uh, you know a younger audience buys a cheaper book so we had to sort of keep it 
just under the art book framework in order to have access to like the urban outfitter kids and you know that you know they just they just don't spend the higher prices on books and i really wanted to reach the new generation well i i hope today that we'll be able to go a little bit past 96 cuz there's so much that happened in 96 that we're going to be spending a lot of time on but then there is what happened after the disco bloodbath party monster era um, is is fascinating to me as well. I want to sort of dive right into it. I want to get to the origin story of Walt Paper because it's so interesting in the book. Um, you you were born in, in California. Yes. And then you were raised. Where were you, where did you grow up? Well, I was sort of, you, you know that movie Mermaids with Cher? Uh-huh. You, you know how whenever there's a problem, they move? That was basically my family. And we sort of went from West Coast to East Coast. That was my progression. You know, my father started out in Japan and then Hawaii and then California. And, you know, my father really bought into a lot of the anxiety of the 80s, like that California was going to break off and sink into the ocean. And, yeah, all that Reagan stuff. And he was a veteran. He was a Navy veteran. And he used to fly spy planes um, for the military. And so he found this ranch in the middle of Missouri that was within a 50-mile strike radius, a nuclear strike radius. So he felt that was safe because he thought he, he sort of thought the world was ending, basically. So he, he dragged, you know, it went from sort of 70s Californian disco, roller skating, Kiss, you know, Disneyland, Knott's Berry Farm to Little House on the Prairie, basically. So it was a really um, somewhat traumatizing transition for me. But, you know, I was a kid, so I adapted. And my parents and my family were very broken. I had a very dysfunctional family. And my mother, everybody sort of ran for the hills as soon as they could. And my mother was in Virginia. And she and my Aunt Ernie were bartenders in the local gay bar. I love this. Yeah, when I started to hit puberty, you know, my hormones started cooking. And I was like, you know... Horses are great. 200 acres are great. But I want to be around boys and music. And I, I wanted to, you know, grab, you know, get to know my mother a little better. The interesting thing about your mother and your aunt working in gay bars is I imagine that there was probably get, uh, queer people around you a lot during that time. And there was probably none of the um, anxiety about coming out to your, your mom, I imagine. Talk a little bit about that. No, I I was never in the closet. I never had to be. Um, you know, my father was an industrial psychologist, so he was incredibly open-minded. And funny enough, my mother was very butch and masculine, and my father was somewhat effeminate, sort of like a Marlon Brando type, you know, that 50s archetype of, of sort of being ultra-masculine, but sort of artistic and soft at the same time. And my mother was basically like a cross between Rizzo from Greece and Karen Black. You know, she she dropped out of high school. She used to, with her butch friend, Ruth, who she was lifelong friends with. And I think they must have had some sort of relationship. Um, they used to go around and beat up cheerleaders and drink and dance and listen to Elvis. And I come from pretty wild stock. You know, my grandmother used to bootleg liquor. My dad used to drive trucks for the Greek mafia. You know, it's like bartenders and sailors across the board. I love that Stanley Kowalski and Rizzo are your parents. That explains so much. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Another interesting thing about your childhood that you write about, or your teen years especially, is I love, I go back to the idea of um, 
clothing as emotional armor and clothing as protection, fashion as protection. And you write about your punk rock days and uh, the the look you had with the mohawk and the eyeliner and the goth look and everything. Talk a little bit about that. Well, my mother, you know, we were, uh, you know, with, with my mother, it was a working class situation. We this again to bring up some movie references it was very pretty and pink you know i was the white kid that lived on the wrong the wrong side of the tracks um in the black neighborhood you know the school buses didn't come to my area and so you know i had to ride public transportation to get to school you know at that time so it was a bunch of black girls with jerry curls and me with a giant black mohawk and it was it was an interesting experience because now, looking back on it, I realize how much um, financial divide there is. You know, we talk so much about race and all the other things that divide us. Um, but economics, you know, in my situation, you know, I, I never had any challenges. Like I was more um, frightened and, and threatened by, you know, upper, upper middle class straight white kids. You know, I had a lot of support from my neighborhood because we were all pretty poor, you know, and that, and that bonded us together. Um, and punk became my foundation. I always say that um, punk gave me my skeleton and the club kids gave me my flesh. You know, my ethics and my, and my interior and sort of understanding um, group, group and scene ethics. I first learned that with punk. You know, that quite kind of loyalty and your what Armistead Mopin says, you go from your your biological family to your logical family. So punk was my first testing of a logical family, but it didn't quite fit. It wasn't like a perfectly tailored fit. It wasn't until I discovered and became a part of the club kids that I actually was like, OK, this fits perfectly. You uh, talk about how there was um, a couple of instances where you were being bullied and people were sort of punching you in the face and you were sort of surrounded by people and you learned instinctively that if you act crazy you will scare them you also got into a little dabbled in witchcraft during that period as well and i think that there's always something so soothing about incantations and feeling that you're in control that that something like uh witchcraft gives you that feeling yeah well the the strange thing in norfolk virginia which is where i was at it's a very interesting little city. You have the Edgar Casey Foundation, and it's sort of like Arizona. It's, it's got a weird New Age uh, undercurrent. And oddly enough, in our poor little neighborhood, you know, around the corner was a shop called Ye Old Mystique Shop. And, you know, I somehow wandered down there and walked in there, and there was a, a witch who ran the store, you know. She sort of looked, was sort of like a Gloria Steinem type of witch. She wasn't, she was really beautiful, she was probably about 40. You know, she had her hair up and a white streak in it. But, you know, glasses and a turtleneck. She was she was sort of like sort of like Wonder Woman meets Gloria Steinem and Satan or something. And uh, <laughs> so I had wandered into that shop and, you know, I was obviously an outsider. You know, I I was attacked a lot as a kid, verbally and physically. And um, I think I don't know. I, I walked in there and she must have seen something in me. She must have seen that I needed support on some level. And and she she taught me some very basic tools, which 
being in a suburban environment and being a queer punk kid who was out, you know, I wasn't hiding. Um, you know, I was looking for any kind of power I could get. And she was the first one that introduced me to the esoteric, you know, and, and whether or not any of that stuff ever worked, it, it gave me confidence. And I also realized in that incident I write about in the book where I was attacked by a group of guys who were driving by in a truck and they jumped off and they started punching me in the face. And somehow in that moment, I knew I couldn't fight them back. I didn't know how to fight. Even if I did, it was one person against five people. And um, I stepped into it and something in me said, you know, ask for more, you know, and maybe they'll think you're crazy. You know what I mean? And I've, I just kept stepping into the punches, like inviting them to punch me more. And they were just like, this kid, this queen is weird. You know what I mean? And they ended up leaving me alone. And, and I realized that the two things, especially in America, that people are most frightened of are the devil and insanity. And so I put a picture of Charles Manson in my locker. And anytime, you know, I'd always do like the wild eyes and stare directly at the end of the hall. Anything that I could do to create that protective glaze, I did. And I realized that I think intuitively that identity could be very protective, as you said, armor. Can I just pick up on something you said? Because you, you said when you... Um, first put on the, you know, when you connect with the club kids, that was the first time everything seemed to sort of click for you. So I'm, I was wondering what it was about that. Well, I guess, you know, when was that and what was that like? And what was it about that that did click for you that made everything make sense so much? Well, you know, a lot of it was the world of New York. You know, walking when I came to New York, it was 1991. I had transferred from Kent State University, where I was an African studies major and a painting major. And I had met a friend from the Bronx. And we sort of start, started going to the local clubs uh, at, in Kent and in the Ohio area. We, we did a road trip to Chicago. So we went to a couple of the clubs in Chicago. And he was the first person. He was like, oh, you're a club kid. And I, I didn't know what that was. And I... I also had not seen the TV show, the, Her the first Geraldo show. But looking back, and, and I wasn't able, obviously you look back and everything makes sense. At that time, I had an algebra teacher who was sort of like the hip, cool teacher. And I remember um, she came in and she goes, oh my God, I saw this show on TV with these kids in New York. And I bet you, I bet you would really fit in there. And it just sort of sat somewhere in my brain and I hadn't seen the show. So I knew I didn't see that Club Kids show till years after the Club Kids ended. Um, so I wasn't arriving to New York. I wasn't really studied. I didn't read Details magazine or Interview magazine. I, I was pretty green and pretty dumb when it came to nightlife culture in New York. I, I knew about Robert Maplethorpe and I knew about Jean-Michel Basquiat. And I was an artist and I liked dancing and I loved culture. And so we got here um, in July, ready to go to school, which would start in September. And as my friend Ivan, he walked us all the way from West 91st Street down to Battery Park and basically like, okay, this is New York. The streets go, you know, the avenues go up and down. The streets go east and west. And he kind of schooled us. And on that trip, we 
we saw a Wigstock poster on the street. And it, 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 was in, it was for the one in 91, which was actually in Union Square. And Delight was headlining. And I, I love Delight. I had seen them play in Cleveland when I was at Kent State. And so that was pretty much all I really knew. But my best friend, Ricky, who I moved, he was the exact opposite. He studied Interview Magazine. He studied details. And so he was my sort of bird in my ear, kind of bringing me up to speed as we would discover things. He'd go, oh, that's that person. And I read about that person. When we eventually saw the club kids, you know, they were about our same age because this was like Desi, Christopher, Pebble, Sacred Boy, sort of the second, what, what I call the second wave. You know, it wasn't really the foundation club kids like James and Michael and Kiyoki and Julie, you know, because they were all doing more administrative type of jobs. And, but the ones kind of on the dance floor hanging out was Desi and Christopher and Sacred. And I was like, wow, you know, th- they're my same age. And we just... You know, I had a sort of freaky ethnic kind of look because I had been doing African studies and we just kind of eyed each other on the dance floor like, who are you? You know, who are you? And we started talking and my friend Ricky says, oh, that that's those are club kids. That's the club kids. And he was like, oh, and, and that's Michael Alec. He, he pointed everyone out to me and I was like, OK, OK, you know, cool. And we really just connected on the dance floor and um they, they were doing looks, but, you know, different from me. And for me, as an artist and a creative, I've, I've always liked to figure out things that I don't know how to do. You know, I've always liked the unfamiliar. I don't really bank on things that I know. And as soon as I know something well enough, my instinct is to destroy it and, and start over and create something new. And so it was just like this open playing field because we had started with Wigstock. You know, and when we went to Wigstock, you know, our eyes were just like, it was biblical. It was like, wow, this is a sea of colorful, creative, sexy. We had never seen New York boys. You know, like boys in New York are very different from the boys everywhere else. And I was like, I, I've never seen a boy that looked like this. I didn't know what a Puerto Rican boy was. I knew black, white, and Asian from suburbia. I was like, what is Puerto, who are Puerto Rican boys, you know, and um, just the whole cultural spectrum was right in front of us. And, you know, my, and the funny thing is, you know, we actually saw RuPaul and we, I was so dumb. I thought she was Diane Carroll from dynasty, you know, and we were like, Oh my God, Diane Carroll's here. And we were so excited. And it took me a while after I met Linda Simpson and saw Ru perform at pyramid. I was like, Oh, it's not, not Diane Carroll, but it just, it, it was an intuitive experience where you just walk into something, you feel accepted, you feel challenged. Um, and it, it, like I said, it, it just fit. And the more I got involved and the more people I started to meet and the different layers, which is what I tried to cover in the book, was that New York had a lot of different pockets and a lot of different groups and, and a lot of different leaders and and they were all interesting and they all had their specific details. So for me, it was just like opening up a whole new world. And I, I was all in. That week stock was a very special one for us, too, because I think Randy and I were filming it for the BBC. And Rue, we were managed, we just started managing Rue. And his uh, supermodel was not out yet. It was like a, a couple of months before supermodel came out. So it was a sort of 
Right, Randy? Was that right? Uh, yeah, it was, it was actually, we weren't filming that. We filmed the previous one for the BBC, but it was the one right before Rue signed his record deal and because it's the one in unions. Well, I remember that one because I uh, performed, I was a backup, I was a go-go dancer for Now Explosion in that one. And I had taken a hit of acid and it just hit when the when, the, when I got on stage and I was go-go dancing and all of a sudden it hit and I was like, what am I doing on stage? I'm not supposed to be on stage. And I remember I ran off and I was carrying one of the clouds. They had a big cloud and I was running through the, the crowd with a cloud and I was like, where am I? What's going on? It was very scary for me. Well, and also, uh, you know, Delight was at their peak at that moment. Oh. So within mainstream culture, all of those things that had been bubbling in New York from the late 80s had surfaced. You know, it was sort of the crest of the wave. And so in looking back and also having gone to many wig stocks, I, I think back to that one in particular. And it, it was particularly glamorous. And I sort of think we all know how New York is, you know. If people think there's an opportunity of being discovered or getting a gig, you know, they bring their A game. And I think Delight had already shown everyone that, wow, this is this is bigger than a local, you know, underground scene. And so I feel like on that particular Wigstock, people really brought their A game. And it, it did. I mean, it seemed very glamorous to me because it was, you know, it was all new. But even years later, it. I don't know. I, sometimes I think that was the best one. Do you remember what you wore to that one? Do you remember what your look was? Oh, I didn't do. I was like a little, you know, African studies kid with rubber banded hair. Um, you know, I was like an alternative indie kid. You know what I mean? Like a college radio, you know, type of thing. I think I think what's interesting, though, because one of the interesting things about Wigstock is it sort of is an illustration of what you mentioned earlier about this idea about the New York club scene isn't really a monolith. It's this, it's, it's so many different pockets of people and different generations. And, and, you know, that was one of the great things about Wigstock is how many different scenes would come together under one roof. Yeah, it was a bit like Noah's Ark, you know. Well, one thing that we've talked about before, and I know that you talk about this in the book as well, is the idea, riffing on the idea of different scenes, that um, there was a moment that drag was sort of um, coming into its own during that period. And there were it, not so much rival, it was a friendly, friendly rivalry between Boy Bar and Pyramid and then with the club kids. And you know, Pyramid was something that uh, was, it was deconstructing drag in a performance art setting, whereas Boy Bar was taking on the idea of self-branding and be uh, the, the drag queen as a personality in the vein of like Divine and Hollywood Lawn. But the idea that, that they were branding and marketing themselves, and it wasn't just female impersonation. Um, uh, talk a little bit about that and, you know, about how the club kids were sort of a safe space for genderqueer and non-binary kids and just the difference between all those different types of drag. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of that, I learned a lot doing in the book. I, I had a sense of things hanging out in the scene. I, I had a sense that there were sort of boundaries and rivalries. And certainly when I fell in with the club kids, there was a distinct distaste for club kids, especially <laughs> from drag queens. And, and, and vice versa, I think because we knew 
that they didn't like us. Um, I, I, you know, I think they, they really didn't like Michael. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was after years of it. It was like they had, you know, a bee in their bonnet about Michael. And we, we were echoes, you know, of him somehow. And we really had to prove ourselves. Um, but we gave it right back. I mean, it, like I remember Desi was making fun of he. I, I started to work a particularly feminine look where I, I, my makeup started to evolve and I got prettier with my look. And he was like, Ugh, you're turning into a drag queen. I can just see it. And, you know, it was like a mortal wound because <laughs> our, you know, our attitude was the, especially coming from my background, you know, my mother had drag queens cooking Christmas dinner. You know, we would have like the Bette Midler impersonator and Diana Ross and, you know, cooking dinner or hanging out. And so in my mind, like drag was traditional, you know, it was a very conventional, you know, traditional thing. Like, and we were sort of like, oh, you're going to dress up like a girl. That's really interesting. You know what I mean? So within our club kids circle, we, we thought that we had something broader, something more fluid, um, that wasn't just an inverse of the binary, you know? And in that sense, I, I feel that the club kids really connected with the trans girls, you know, because, and there was also that element of 24 seven, like club kids, you, you couldn't really hide. Like, even if we didn't have elaborate looks, we didn't have eyebrows, we were all pierced and, you know, we had day looks. Whereas a lot of the drag queens that I met at that time, you know, they would wash off their drag and, and go to an office job if they needed to, and they could look like a normal boy. And, and so there was that level of commitment. It's like, well, we, we can't really wash off being club kids and trans, trans people can't wash off being trans. You know, it's a 24 hour commitment. So I, I sense there, there was just some differences. And, and as you said, at the end of the day, we all understood that we were part of the same community. But there is also that aspect of hazing that happens with scenes as they develop, where you have an older school and they kind of haze the new school. And, and it is underneath it, I think, lovingly. You know what I mean? And, and I think that it is very supportive in a way because it challenges you. You knew that you were being scrutinized, so you had to bring your A game. You had to deliver something really solid. And, and so it was a very good thing, you know, because it, it forced you to be more creative. Although at the time, I, you know, it was like, ugh, you know, the annoying drag queen. Like, why is she giving me fever, you know? But, you know, it, you know it's interesting that because Michael was a little bit of an exception to that. And you said, you know, people just disliked Michael. And Randy and I first met Michael, and he was the cutest, sweetest guy but he did seem to piss a lot of people off and keep pissing them off. What was your perception about that? Well, I, I didn't, I, at first, and also even within the club kids, there were divisions. There were Kiyoki people and there were Michael people. Like I remember being at Desi and Pebbles and Christopher's apartment when I was just starting to get to know them. And I didn't know Michael, you know, my first job was at the building for Kiyoki's groove thing. And I had been hired and sort of discovered by Linda Simpson. Linda Simpson was the person who really gave me my initial grooming. She gave me my first job doing illustrations for the VIP room at Building. And Howard gave me a studio in the attic. And I was, you know, I was 18 years old. My idols were Robert Maplethorpe and Jean-Michel Basquiat. I was like, I'm 18. I have an art studio in the hottest club in town. Like, life is over. This is all I need. This is as good as it gets. <laughs> end of the rainbow and um 
you know, I was so thrilled by that. But when I started to see Michael and get to know, you know, my my generation of club kids, um, like Michael would call and they'd be like, Michael's on the phone. And they were really excited. And I was like, I didn't understand why they were sweating him so much. I didn't get it. You know, he didn't appeal to me at first because the cooler people from the scene used to gravitate towards Gyoki, like Jojo and Guy and the House of Field people who were much more poised and mannered and you know to me at first glance Michael seemed really sloppy you know and childish and you know I had come from Kent State where I was a political activist and you know I had already been in newspapers and stuff from being an activist but I had I was more serious you know I I I didn't want to make a joke I I wanted a revolution I wanted to sort of change the world Um, so my intentions were much more serious and when I finally did get to know Michael, it, it was great because he countered that in a really nice way for me. And he showed me some different angles. And in many ways, he, he lightened me up and softened me. And I was very grateful and remain grateful for that er, those early days mentorship. And I remember, actually, when I first bonded with Michael, I was on the stage of Limelight. And I used to roll my eyes in the back of my head and pretend. I used to think I was a dragonfly. And so I was always fluttering my wings and, and Michael came up and grabbed my feet and he was like, do you realize this is why you're special? This is why you belong here. And he sort of gave me that hat on the back. And from that point on, I opened up to him and we started to develop a really nice friendship. You moved into the Club Kid apartment that I, I don't ever remember, but the stories sound so amazing. It was a four-story apartment that everyone lived at? Who all were the people that were there? Well, there were two. When I first moved to New York, I was at the SVA dorm at the Greystone Hotel. And then after that first semester, you know, when I started to get jobs in clubs, I wanted to move further downtown. And uh, and there were actually two, what I, what I refer to as the club kid houses in Gramercy Park. There was one on 24th Street and ours was on 22nd Street. And both of them, they were actually three levels. So they were triplexes. Um, with multiple rooms, and every room had like two club kids living in them. Desi, Aphrodita, Christopher Comp, Sushi, William, um, they all lived on 24th Street. And on 22nd Street, ours was like the club kid, ours, our house would eventually become sort of the raver house. They infiltrated my house. And um, it was, you know, me and Zoe and Lila and Joski and there were some skaters and DJs. Sebastian Jr. was there for a minute. You know, like you never came over because you weren't around. You had left. Yeah, I was in Los Angeles and uh, South Beach for a couple of years there. And um, I remember when I came back, the the difference in the club scene. And you you say it was a second wave. To me, it was a third wave. And it was um, it was you and Desi and who well, I knew Desi and I knew Christopher and Aphrodita and everybody. But um, uh, Astro and um, was it Desire? Was that what was her name? Desire was around. I mean, you know, there were also tears within the club kids. I mean, there were so many. And you sort of had the inner circle and then you had the second layer and it it kind of rippled out in terms of power. You know, there was a pecking order within the club kids, without a doubt. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I'm just kind of curious because because when, you know, um, when we did the, the Party Monster doc, we were so just inspired, you know, when you think back to that time pre-social media, you know, it was a completely different world. 
And sometimes I wonder if we were like, like, were we projecting an ideology onto the club kids or was there one? Like, like when you talk about these, the, 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 these triplexes with all you guys living there, like when you weren't at the clubs, like what was life like and what, like, you know, you wanted, you came to New York and at the beginning you wanted to start a revolution and was that spirit still there? And did you guys talk about what you were doing and what your ambitions were and where you were going? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I have to say my most poignant and favorite times within the club kids was not out at the clubs. I mean, I, I, the clubs were very ritualistic, you know, and they, as you began the night, um, you went on this sort of journey that went up and up and up. And, and I always really loved the morning after working and, and going out and we would all gather, you know, um, we would sit around and do drugs. We would wash off our makeup. It was very much a ritual. We all, I remember my most vivid visual. We used to use that queen Helene mint julep mask. All of us would take all of our outfits off. We'd all be in white t-shirts and tidy whitey underwear with these green faces and we'd be sitting around, you know, tripping or doing coke or finishing off the last bits of drugs because within the inner circle, there were a couple of people who sold drugs. And so by the time we got back to the club kid houses, it was like family time. And it was also a good time to put on trial any new person we had discovered at the clubs. Like if we had a cute boy from New Jersey that we liked, or there was a new club kid visiting from another city, they were sort of put in front of the panel and we were like, let's see what they're all about, you know? And that was our time to kind of test people and feel people out and see like, because like I said, there was a hierarchy within the club kids and, and, you know, we were sort of seeing who fits with us, you know, and tonally everybody, what was interesting about the group as a whole is each individual brought something different. You know, I was very political and very, into culture and African studies and cultural studies. Um, we were also all different ethnicities. You know, Desi was Puerto Rican. I was Irish. You know, there, there was that. And then there were also geographics because we all came from a different part of the country. But the thing that bonded our particular group together is that we had really evolved out of goth music and industrial music and punk and hardcore prior to that. So I think what set us aside, and I know in interviews, Michael Musto has has mentioned this, that our sort of wave was a little scarier and a little tougher. And a, they weren't, we also weren't so much like ecstasy, yay, play, you know, playful. We were like, let's, let's take acid and go to another dimension and time travel. And, you know, Desi and I used to talk about having fire starting powers and telekinesis. And again, we were these battered queer kids so we wanted power it's like we had been the underdogs and when we got to new york and saw the club kids it was like wait you know we can empower ourselves we're, we're not the victim here you know we can take control of this thing and and i think a lot of that rippled down from people like ernie glam and michael alec where they embraced the branding aspect of the group and it's like, well, why should we wait around to be discovered? We can discover ourselves and own our own power and control everything. 
And that was a really interesting and really new concept. Now it seems like every day because we have influencers and people doing, people understand self-branding. But also at that time, in within underground culture, that type of attitude of being so into self-promotion was seen as selling out, like you're trying too hard, like you should dial it back and be a little cooler and be more underground. I think that's why people found Michael so annoying because he was like self-promotion, self-promotion, branding, you know, he was always working that angle and that was perceived as selling out at that time. Now, look at where we are today, you know, it was so forward thinking. You're so right about that. Oh my gosh, because he was looked down on for that and, and there were these sort of fathers of the scene who were senior figures and there was a, definitely a sense that pop culture and celebrity and all that was very uncool right randy i mean i i with the pop tarts that was very much we were very flagrantly self-branding selling we couldn't wait to sell out i went through that with celebutantism i was very much looked down for that yeah no i know it was all about pretending not to want to be famous, pretending you didn't want to be famous, and you were sort of reluctantly thrust into the limelight. And you're right, Michael completely changed all that and brought a whole new approach, as, as did you, James, right? We talk about how the, um, the, that, that wave was more confrontational and scarier, and things got darker very quickly in the 90s. I remember when I came back from Los Angeles, I was shocked at, at the difference in the club scene and uh, you know how things had gotten druggier and it wasn't ecstasy. It was the heroin had snuck in and all of that. Um, you made a good point about how um, – like things at the emergency room. And I remember I started doing blood, bloody looks after I saw Miss Guy. She was, she did a, um, a Sharon uh, Tate right after she had been stabbed at a ball and she came out and she was pregnant and she, she was bloody and she was losing the baby and she was crying. And I remember that was such a, a, a pivotal moment for me, but you say that the whole blood look uh, of like emergency room and then when the club kids started being bloody that that was something different entirely yeah i mean when i look back and of course at that time i only saw what was in front of my face i wasn't thinking in those terms i wasn't strategic or contrived in in that way um i was just going on instincts um but looking back you know at that time also our group you know that we're talking about you know we were in that window of people we had we hadn't missed AIDS because it was the belly of the beast people were dying right and left but because we were hitting puberty at that much of a younger age we almost hit that safety window where it, it was we weren't being intimate and having sex when nobody knew what was going on we knew what was going on and so we knew we had to be very careful you know so we weren't um we were sort of like the first safe window with AIDS. Of course, people from my generation died of AIDS too, but also me coming from a gay, my mother working in a gay bar, you know, she was like, just don't drop your pants for anyone when you get there. And, um, you know, her friends had died of AIDS. So I was hyper aware of that. And, you know, I think, you know, this was also at the time when it still wasn't known really how you got it. Like, I thought you could catch AIDS from sitting on a toilet seat. So I would never use a public bathroom. And I had all these phobias about it. And blood as, as a material, even fake blood, was the scariest thing you could think of, you know, and the most deadly thing you could think of. And I think the club kids were always searching for impact. 
you know, and whatever we could find to drive and also challenge. We were all, we were seeking the edge of everything in every single way possible, whether it was through humor or aggression or any kind of prankster antics that we had. Whenever we saw an opportunity to challenge, we dove for it. And I think that that's where blood was appealing. And also my group, we had come of age with KISS. You know, all, our little group, we were all huge KISS fans. You know, we were just at that age where we were like the seven and eight-year-olds at the kids KISS concert. My dad took me to a KISS concert when I was seven, the Dynasty Tour. So um, I think that was in there. It was a mixture of all of those things. Yeah, I, I just the idea of, of the bloody look as a metaphor for age panic is, is just fascinating to me. Well, and also, we, you know, I think, Part of the reason the club kids uh, were so appealing to be a part of is because sex fell off limits. You know, my hormones were boiling, especially when I saw that crowd at Wigstock and all those hot guys. I was just like, but I I couldn't act on it. I was like, I can't have sex. I don't want to die, you know, and um, it fell off limits. So our counter, it's like when you lose one of your capacities, all of your other ones rise up and become bionic and stronger you know, like your senses. And so I was like, well, we can drink and take drugs and we can dance and we can dress up. Sex isn't really available to us. So let's focus. Let's do all that other stuff. You started working at Pat Fields and um, Jojo was a, a great friend of yours, Jojo America, who is so talk about beautiful boys and just fantastic looks. So amazing. Uh, this is probably sort of peak House of Fields era. And um, you became part of the ballroom scene and um, when you were uh, with the House of Fields, which is a whole different, whole different podcast. I would love to talk about to them sometime. Um, what, tell me about that. Well, the first house that I was brought into, and I wouldn't say I was so much a part of the ball scene. Um, I was always, you know, another thing that distinguished our group, and I think it was our age, um, in comparison to the older club personalities, most of those personalities would sort of linger in VIP. You know, they do coke and have cocktails and socialize. You wouldn't see them on the main dance floor that much by that time. And we were younger, and like me and Desi and Earl, we, we liked to be right in the middle of the crowd of all the testosterone and the sweaty boys from Staten Island, you know. And we were ritualizing, you know, and I also on that main dance floor were sort of leftover voguers. You know, the voguing thing had already passed and ballroom's peak had happened. So I think a lot of those dancers who were interested in dancing, they would uh, they were at limelight and you would have the voguers and you would still have some break dancers as well. And a lot of times the straight boy break dancers would battle the femme queen voguers in these dancing circles. And my first jobs were, was as a go-go dancer too. So I was dancing in the cage. And so we were just in the same spot and I met the kids from the house of L'Amour. Um, and like Caesar, who now goes by Caesar Valentino and princess and, and those people. And we connected through dancing and, and they invited me to be a part of the house of L'Amour. And I was like, Oh, I don't really know what it is, but sure. Great. And, um, that was my first house. And then later on, I was, I think one of the first people from the older set that really embraced me was Jojo Americo, who was Jojo field at that time. And, 
I remember he did like a fabulous 500 invite for his birthday at Palladium and he listed all of the names and I was the only club kid name on the list. And at that time, uh, you know, like the house of field really hated club kids like everybody. And, um, and they were pretty fierce and ferocious because they, they were incredibly refined. They were very sexy. They gravitated to that boy bar sector, which going back to that, I think, as it's as it was explained to me, you know, I think the boy bar queens were sort of re-embracing a '70s approach to performance and drag. It was very pristine and very tight and together and refined. And the House of Field, they were all like that. They were so they weren't sort of sloppy. They were very creative, but they weren't sort of sloppy and performance arty. They were sharp, razor sharp. And so when I was included on that invite from that point on, and also that would have been 19, the 1992 Style Summit, where JoJo and some of the House of Field people were judges. They had the king and queen of the Style Summit. And me and Kevin Aviance won king and queen. I don't know who was the king or who was the queen. but I, And I remember Cody Ravioli was like, are you a boy or a girl? And I said, neither. Because at the time, we didn't have transgender, we didn't have fluid, maybe an uh, academic may have had those words, but I didn't know those you words. Certainly didn't. No, and yeah. that's very much how I felt. I felt fluid and non-binary. Now I can describe it that way. But at that time, I said neither. That was the only answer I had. Yeah. And from that point on, I, I was taken under JoJo's wing. And I was really excited because I, I knew they didn't like club kids. And I felt like, oh, my God, I made it in. I want to get very dark for a minute because uh, something I don't remember, a night that I don't remember, I might have been gone during this period, but um, you talk about the time when all the club kids decided they were going to take heroin for the first time. You were back by then. You actually didn't come in on heroin. I remember when you came in, and I'll tell you why. I hope it doesn't offend you. Um, you know, I, I noticed that your look was very different, you know, cause that you had this sort of blonde bubble wig and it was, you were very white and crystallized and, you know, and to me, I had only heard your name, but I had heard, and I had also, you were known for being very witty and you were the writer from the group. That's how you were conveyed to me and the ethos of the club kids was always to use nightlife as a stepping stone to get to another level. And so in my mind, you know, I was, we were all passing through to bigger things. Like nightlife was just the start. And you were sort of like this fabulous ghost figure that had made it out, you know, just like Delight and RuPaul and, oh, James has gone to write, you know. So when you came back, I, I have to say in my mind, I was like, what did you, did you fail? Like, why are you back? You know, why, you know, and you also, you could tell that you were trying to find where you fit, you know, you had sort of in a way started this whole thing, but then you were coming back and it's like, I could see how uncomfortable you were. And it was yeah. just curious to me. Cause I always thought, wait, you're not following the plan. Why are you back here? You know? And that was actually, that was pre heroin. You know, heroin really came into play around Club USA. And that was sort of the time. And I remember that because our first, our first time, the group, our little group doing heroin was 
on a Thursday night at Limelight, which was an off night. Thursday nights was like model night usually. And, um, and we all, you know, had decided to try heroin just because, again, we were always looking for the edge of things. And it's like we knew how dangerous it was. We knew how threatening it was. We were not naive babes in the wood. We were like, wow, this is dangerous. So it's kind of like the blood. You know, we were always looking for impact. And so heroin had a tremendous impact. And we're like, you know, can we do it? Can we survive? You know, it was like a truth or dare, you know, Russian roulette, more like Russian roulette. And all of us collectively agreed that we would try it. And and Junkie Jonathan went out and got it for us. And we all went up into the back office of Limelight. And Jonathan explained to us, this is not cocaine. You know, you don't need a lot of it. Just do a tiny bit. You may throw up. It was like a tutorial. And we all sort of gathered around the table and then we did it. And, and also everyone at the club, because it wasn't really busy, knew that the club kids are trying heroin tonight. You know, we were almost like these lab rats. And so all of the people who were not willing to partake waited on the main dance floor while we went in the back. And we sort of came down to bear witness to well, what would happen and we were all fine, you know, there was no dramatic thing, you know, nobody threw up, nobody overdosed. And and that yeah. was the beginning. And and from that from that point on, heroin started to find its way in. And and I remember doing an interview for the pre-opening of Club USA. I think it was with 60 Minutes. And uh, we were all gathered in the stairwell, me and Michael in the sort of inner circle. And by that time, the media was well tuned to the club kids doing ecstasy and party drugs like they liked it. It was like and I remember the guy going, so you guys are going to dress up. Are you going to take some ecstasy? And and we're like, oh, no, it's all about heroin now. And his face dropped, you know, and the whole interview just skid to a halt. And you know how Mike was kind of trying to find a solution and he was like, ha, ha, ha. And, and, and then Matthew and Zaldi were walking by because they were rehearsing for a, a presentation at USA. And Michael goes, oh, maybe we should get him to interview Matthew and Zaldi, you know. And, um, you know, it, it was that point of, you know, we realized, you know, but we liked that. Like the fact that the interview just completely caved in and this guy was flipped out, like that was gold. It was like mission accomplished, you know. Um, we didn't, we... We knew that the danger was there, but we liked it. We liked it. And that and that was a little... You were already well back by that time. There is that pivotal point in the 90s where everything went to grunge and deconstruction and heroin chic, and the music changed. It, it went from, you know, house to techno. And um, there, there was also things that were just darker, darker, darker um, during that time. Do you... I, I'm sort of thinking that that moment of heroin is a pivotal change in when things um, took that darker turn. Yeah. And I also think, you know, there were, you know, there was also the political and the sort of uh, drug landscape of the city at that time. And probably across the country, there was a huge influx of heroin to the streets, which, again, I didn't know that at that time, but studying and looking back. And it was deeper and it was and it was it was the China white that you could snort as opposed to inject. The drug had sort of infiltrated, you know, the city landscape. It seemed like everyone was on heroin. You know, we were on heroin, then grunge, all those kids were on heroin. And, 
you know, there was also the development of heroin chic, which which came as a result of that. And it was sort of just across the board in the air. And I I also liken that tonal drug change to some of the differences between the 80s and the 90s. You know, Bill Clinton had we had come out of Reagan and now we were in the we were in the Clinton era. Everything was kind of loosening up where the 80s were somewhat very rigid and very posed, you know, I felt. Um, and and in the 90s, it felt like things were kind of softening, like we weren't it wasn't about coke and pretending to be, you know, like the dynasty era of money and you know, because I always thought of the older club kids as like trust fund babies. You know what I mean? Like it was like, oh, they they come from money. But our group, we all came from like working and lower middle class families. And 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 also the grunge and the music, everything, because also with the even the techno came in and you started to get into trance and, you know, all everything seemed to soften and open up and it was almost about um, instead of posing and very rigid clothing, like a Gautier tailored rigid garment, you know, it sort of went to like thrift store clothes and ill fitting and weird undersized t-shirts and pants that dragged on the ground. And it was sort of sloppier and, and looser. I, in my mind, the nineties was all about deconstruction. You know, whereas you rip everything apart, you put it back together and you sort of let all the scars and all the seams show. And you could see that in the drugs. You could see that in the fashion. You could just see it in the way people were hanging out, you know. I'd like to have you back and I'd like to continue this conversation because we could talk for another three hours, I'm sure. Benton, was there anything you wanted to... No, I mean, well, just your perspective and insights are so are so amazing. And, I, you know, we've been, since Michael was released, you know, James was there when Michael came out of prison, and we've been filming over the years and trying to make this other story. And I think that, again, that led to this night fever idea because it was like, tragically, Michael didn't escape that gravitational pull of addiction, and there isn't a redemption story in there, right, James? Right. But but there are so many other redemption stories out there that are worth being told. Well, thank you so much for coming thank on. You. And um, like I said, we, we definitely need to have you back because there's so many other stories that need to be told and so many other uh, things that I'd like to get into with you. Um, but I love you. I love you too. Um, and um, everybody, thanks for listening to Night Fever. We'll be back next week with more. Money, success.